Well, good morning, everyone. Together, time reminded me of the great hope of all preachers. If God can talk through a donkey, then surely he can talk through me too. Let's pray and ask him to do that for all of us. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your life-giving word and we pray that as we hear it again today, you would do that work of renewal, of transformation, helping us to know and love you better and know and understand ourselves more. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Do have uh, Genesis 3 open in front of you. We'll be looking at that uh, together today. But as we begin, Genesis 3 got me thinking about how I want to understand people better. I want to understand our experience better. I want to understand myself better. Why do I have to lock my house when I leave it? Why is it that when I order a skip to fill with rubbish, it gets filled by other people before I get my chance? Uh, What's going on there? Uh, When I don't treat my wife Louise the way I should, or my children the way I want, or others fall short of the way I want them to treat me, am I the cause or am I the victim? Could I do anything different or change others to do any better? And wouldn't it be good to go home today and to turn on the news and find that it wasn't there? It had been cancelled because nothing bad happened today. (laughs) Genesis 3 has the answers. As David said, the difference between what we read in the first two chapters of Genesis and our experience now, against the backdrop of God's good creation and the paradise of Eden, it explains our failures and frustrations. It shows us the heart of evil and the nature of sin. It shows us how it all started and what went wrong. But in showing us what happened, it shows us what is happening. And the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is the beginning and at the same time it is also the pattern that has been reproduced again and again in every one of us and with which we live day by day. And so Genesis 3, in Genesis 3, we see sin's seriousness as we see God's response, as we see the judgment of God on evil and sin. But here too, we see the character of God that even in pronouncing the most serious judgment, he shows grace and a pathway to rescue us. A grace and salvation that reaches its summit in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how did sin begin and what is it? Well, we see it here in Genesis 3. Sin at its heart is the distrust and denial of God. The conversation between the uh, woman and the serpent here shows us more about sin perhaps than when the man and woman eat. But what's the story with a talking snake After all, I've never come across one, nor have you. In fact, no animals talk. But the wider context of the Bible points to Satan pulling the strings here, using the snake as his mouthpiece. Which begs a second question. Where did Satan come from? (laughs) Is he a fallen angel? We're not really told. We don't know. Uh, But listen to what unfolds in this conversation so that we might understand who he is and how he operates. 
In chapter 3, verse 1, Satan says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And straight away we see him casting doubt on God's word. Asking, did he really say that? And we know from chapter 2, verse 16, God did say and was clear about what they could and couldn't eat. And let me read it for you. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so there's a two-pronged attack here. On the one hand, questioning whether God spoke on the topic, and then on the other, twisting what he said. It shows the weapon of the devil. It is lies. He is the father of lies and he wields them to create distrust in and denial of God. The woman's answer should have been no. Yes, God did speak, but no, that's not what he said at all. On top of that, the devil questions the consequences God promised. If you ate from the tree, uh, if they ate from the fruit of this tree, the woman says, God said they would die. And she's spot on. And the devil flatly denies it. Uh, You won't die, he says. In fact, he says, God is holding something back from you. He's not acting in your best interest. So denial and distrust, questioning God's motives, questioning his goodness. It occurred here in the beginning and it's been the pattern ever since. Despite the trees which uh, in chapter 2 were described as pleasing to the eye and good for food, all of them given by God as was their fellowship with him, as was their rule over the earth, as was their very life, they believed the lie and broke the command of God. I say they because her husband ate it too in verse 6. He was with her, uh, and we'll hear more about him in just a minute. But what did they eat? Uh, What was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, Down through the history of art, you've probably seen quite a few apples uh, in your time, but there's no reason to think it was an apple. Uh, Another uh, contender has been that it was sex, but we know from Genesis 2 that God made them male and female for the one flesh relationship, so it wasn't that. Was it that they would know good and evil, right and wrong? Well, God had already told them what was right and wrong. They could eat from every tree, but they couldn't eat the fruit of this one, so It wasn't knowing about right, certainly. But when they eat, what happens? In verse 7, their eyes are opened and they realise they were naked. And in verse 22, God makes it clear they had become like God, not in the same way the devil had said, but in a way God had never intended. Uh, That's why they're cut off from the tree of life. They thought God was keeping something from them and they wanted it. They wanted to choose. They wanted the power that actually belonged to God, the power to decide what was right and wrong. And so sin is not in the first place about breaking rules, although that's how you see it. 
It's a quest for the power to write the rules. Have you ever heard of Hutt River? Uh, We've mentioned it before here at church. Uh, I gather it turned into a tourist destination in Western Australia, but at the end of the 60s, which is quite a long time ago now, the people there seceded from Australia. Apparently it was a dispute over grain quotas uh, and taxes, like, you know, pretty much every dispute between people ever. Uh, But since then, they didn't pay taxes. They made their own stamps. They even had their own prince, Prince Leonard of Hutt. And this is a community smack bang in the middle of Western Australia, but which said to the Australian government, you don't have any authority here. Now, since Prince Leonard's death, they have returned and we welcome them with open arms. But here, smack bang in the middle of God's garden, in the middle of God's world, reaching out and eating the tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was reaching out in an attempt to say to God, You have no authority here. It sounds familiar to our day, doesn't it? Where people will say, Well, there are many gods, but have no place for the true God. Uh, We should tolerate all religions, but none of them really matters. Or simply just forgetting which God. Now, not only is sin a denial of God, what we see here is that it fractures relationships as well. As soon as the man and the woman disobey God, they become aware of their nakedness. They cover up. They're afraid Because suddenly they know they are vulnerable, vulnerable to each other. Why? Well, because they've crossed a line over which they could not return. Once they grasped for power beyond what God intended, they they could and would do it against each other as well. And you see the same in their relationship with God. If you lived with your Lord and Maker, what would you expect to do when you saw him? Run to his side? But what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. And when God asks the man why in verse 10, he says, because I was afraid. And fear is not meant to be part of our experience. But it certainly is now, isn't it? We protect ourselves from one another, even from loved ones, by what we say and what we don't say. The power struggle that started here has been passed on down to all of us. And it's the character of sin not just to deny God and fracture relationships. It's also to deny responsibility as well. In verse 11, when the Lord God asks Adam if he's disobeyed God, what's his response? Is to blame everyone but himself. And so he says, verse 12, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. The Lord turns to the woman and asks, What have you done? And her response, To blame the serpent. But neither of them have a leg to stand on. For they both knew the command of God. 
even more profound than a command, though, they live their lives bathed in the goodness of their creator whose every word and act showed their true character. And they still rose up in treason, in rebellion. And it has been that way since. Now, this chapter, Genesis 3, actually uh, introduces a particular cycle that is going to turn up again and again in the Bible, a cycle uh, that repeats in chapters 1 to 11 and then the rest as well. Uh, It's a cycle that looks a bit like this. Uh, Human sin followed by God's judgment but also followed by God's grace. Now, we've been looking at uh, the human sin here in these early verses of Genesis 3. From verse 14, we now see God's judgment. And it's not just on this, this man and woman, but with effects that will outlast them and spread to all creation. Notice the character of God's judgment. It falls directly on the specific roles they were given, good roles in the good order of creation. Consider the snake as an animal, even apart from the influence of Satan, and instead of humanity ruling over the animals, there'll be a contest. What about the woman in verse 16? She was made as a helper to her husband. She was made to relate to him as the mother, as a mother to children. And what are the specific judgments on her? First, it's increased pains in childbirth. She was made to help the man rule and fill the earth. Now the increasing numbers will come with increased pain and frustration. Secondly is her relationship with her husband. Her her desire here isn't emphasising an emotional or sexual desire, but the desire to take the reins. Uh, It's the power struggle of sin again. And he will struggle back and they'll both contest where there should be harmony. And what about the man, verse 17 to 19, in creation, God gave the plants and the fruit trees to eat. It was all laid on. It was a, you know, went to a hotel a few weeks ago and they have these buffet breakfasts that are included in the cost. I feel like a kid in a candy store every time. Uh, the Garden of Eden was like that. The fruit, the food was laid on. Now he will have to break his back to eat it. The ground will work against him. It's not that work is a judgment from God, it's that his work will be frustrated. And what is the last judgment, Adam? Hears God speak. Verse 19, from dust you are and to dust you will return. You will surely die. That's what God had said, that is what God does say. He is true to his word. The devil's words were lies. Now, what else do you notice about judgment here? Another thing that strikes me is that it's not arbitrary. It actually reinforces the effects of sin. So before God announces the curses, sin places the man and woman at odds with one another. Now it's decreed that that will be the pattern. Before God announces it, sin breaks their fellowship with God. When he casts them out of the garden, it becomes official. This rift will be long-standing. What else do you notice? 
The judgment of God falls on everyone involved without exception. The serpent, the woman, the man, they're all addressed separately. Each is responsible for their own actions. There are no grounds for saying, God made me do it, or the woman, or the devil. Those who sin are those who will be held accountable. So come back to that uh, cycle I mentioned where sin leads to judgment, but even in the middle of the first and most serious judgment in the Bible, the Lord demonstrates who he is and what characterises the way he treats people as we turn now too to his grace. Have a look at the curse on the snake, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Is it just about snakes? Or is it looking to a battle against Satan and the human race to come? Is this the first promise of the rescue plan of the Lord Jesus that he will bring? And then there's the reality that while they will die, they don't die straight away. And so the Lord God places boundaries on his judgment that actually benefit humanity. And you see Adam in verse 20 naming his wife Eve because she'll become the mother of the living. And you see a confidence that God will keep his promises. Even down to the fine detail of making, you know, fig leaf speedos and bikinis, the Lord God instead provided them with proper clothes clothes of skin that will cover them and that will last through the toil of their work. And even as God bars them from Eden, as he places a flaming sword between Adam and Eve and the tree of life, isn't even that an act of kindness? Remember, there were two trees in the garden singled out, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, But given the consequences of disobeying God and the effects of sin, how much more terrible would it be to remain in that condition forever? Even as his judgment falls, the Lord God shows mercy. Even here he triggers the plan that the rest of the Bible will unfold, a plan which will see our sin, the sin of our representative Adam, met and overcome by another representative, the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul was saying in the reading from Romans 5, that what began with one man, God would write through another greater man for all who trust in him. The serpent crusher promised all the way back in Genesis 3. So what will be helpful for us to take away from Genesis 3 this morning? Apart from understanding the character of sin and God's judgment and salvation, his grace, what does it mean for us? I want to focus uh, in a minute on a few specifics, but first we do need to reflect on what Genesis 3 has to say about order in God's creation. It's come up before, we looked at it in chapters 1 and 2, I've mentioned it a couple of times uh, today already, Uh, but we do need to think about it and there is a chance that I'll be misunderstood. So if you have questions or concerns, I hope you'll follow them up with me. 
But what we see here is that God has built an order into creation where there are times and relationships where there are those who are meant to lead and those who are meant to follow. Depending on the different relationships you are in, there may be times you find that you have to lead in a relationship and other times where you're called on to follow. Now, that, that is pretty countercultural at the moment. We came across it uh, last term in Ephesians as well. Uh, but the suggestion of order in relationship here, as we read it, is God's word to us. We need to read it as the good word of God, not an attack on our equality or on our opportunity or as a conspiracy by men against women. That's not to say people haven't been mistreated, that women haven't been mistreated. And those who have power have mistreated those who don't have it. And it happens among those who call themselves Christians as well. But would you consider, the solution isn't to get rid of order where some lead and others follow. That might be a good observation of the symptom, but it's a wrong diagnosis of the problem. Here in Genesis 3, we see the problem. And what's the diagnosis? The problem is sin. We need sin to be dealt with. In fact, we talked earlier about how sin fractures relationships. That's because part of its character is to grasp at power. And so what we see here in Genesis 3 is this overturning of the order in God's creation that was meant to be God to humanity and husbands and wives and them over the creation. You come to Genesis 3 and it unfolds the opposite way round. All those relationships are turned on their head. The serpent who's part of the creation takes a lead with the people when he's meant to be led, the woman with her husband and the man who is meant to be a leader to his wife and the creation, he abdicates that lead altogether. And so together what they have done is tried to take the lead that is the Lord God's alone. And here in Genesis 3, and as Paul writes in Romans 5, uh, notice what comes with the role of leadership. It's responsibility. And the responsibility for letting this happen is laid on the shoulders of the man, Adam. God made people to operate a certain way with an order in relationships, and we upset that at our peril, and upsetting that, order was fundamental to our rebellion in the first place. Now, I did say we were going to look at a few specifics when it comes to being sin-wise, to being wise as people who know God. Let's, uh, let's have a look at those now. The first is that we are all involved and responsible. That's what Romans 5 verse 12 said. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. The Bible doesn't explain the mechanics of how, but clearly the way God made us, as Adam sinned, so we are responsible and became sinners as well. We know it's true. Uh, If you haven't observed it in the people around you, you just haven't got to know them well enough yet. 
And if anyone who denies it about themselves is only demonstrating uh, that, you know, at best they're naive, at worst they're a liar. Caught up with this involvement is our responsibility. That God holds us accountable for our actions and that we can't offload that responsibility neither to God nor to Adam. At the same time, where Adam lost the battle with sin and evil on behalf of the human race, we can't forget today that Christ has won it. So don't leave this morning forlorn or without hope, even as we've been confronted by the reality of Genesis 3. Uh, No forgiveness. Romans 5 verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus submitted to his heavenly father. He lived in line with the word of God, in obedience to God, and through him he now offers you and I forgiveness and eternal life. Next way of being wise is to know yourself. We're not reading Genesis 3 in order to suffocate under the weight of sin and the seriousness of judgment. We're here to understand the greatness of God in Christ and it it only makes sense against this most significant backdrop. But we're here to understand what a transformed life now will look like before Christ returns as we wait. You know, soldiers don't go to war without getting intelligence on what they're up against. And you and I can't fight the good fight of the Christian life without knowing that we are sinful. I need to know my own heart. Sin is still there. Certainly God's spirit empowers me to live under his word and authority, but it's a battle, isn't it? I I experience it each day. I've experienced it in the last week. And I'm confident you have too. And the danger for us is, like Genesis 3, to deny God's word, although we can make it less obvious than just saying it bluntly by just overlooking it. And the temptation is to deny God's goodness, though we might make it sound politer by saying, surely God would want me to be happy and then doing what we want. Or better to say nothing than have an open conflict when there is a conflict, but addressing it comes, makes us vulnerable. Know yourself. Know yourself. Be sin wise. Be sin wise. Uh, The fourth aspect of being sin wise is to know your adversary. The, The devil's power is not thunderbolts and the special effects of movies he is not the bible tells us he is not the judge or keeper of hell his power is the power of lies and that doesn't mean we should scoff the bible tells us he prowls around like a a roaring lion looking to devour his prey 
But if we reject his lies, he has no power over us. Know your adversary. The final aspect of being sin-wise this morning is how we respond to those around us. Yes, they, of course, need the good news about Jesus that we have received. We, of all people, appreciate that. But I wanted to say another thing as well. We need to have compassion with each other. We are all sinners. Without Christ, we are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so when we disappoint each other, whether it's outside of church or inside church, will you show compassion? Will you show grace? Will you take the initiative to explain what's happened to the person who has wronged you? And will you be willing to forgive them when they seek your forgiveness? What we've seen today is that God, God has shown us such great grace in the face of Genesis 3 and all it means. And so what we've likewise seen today is the greatness and goodness of God in providing his grace to us. I'll lead us in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Thank you that again today we see you more clearly and may love you more dearly as we likewise see and understand ourselves. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to be wise, wise in knowing forgiveness, wise in knowing our sinful selves, wise in offering forgiveness from the deep well with which you have offered us your forgiveness. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might grow in the practice and in the experience of treating each other the way you always intended us to treat each other as we look forward to the day when we will see you and be with you together in the new creation and experience sin no more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.